Hello and welcome to Paleo Cinema Podcast 246. My name is Terry Frost and this time around I'm hitting one of the big movies of the 1950s and a smaller movie from the early 1960s. The first one is Elia Kazan's adaptation of John Steinbeck's East of Eden starring James Dean, Raymond Massey and Julie Harris. Then we go on to 1961 for a British political drama, in fact, called No Love for Johnny, starring Peter Finch, which has got some really nice acting in it. So sit back or get the contact details out of the way, and we'll start talking about a century ago in California and half a century ago in the UK. Paleo Cinema Podcast is a podcast of old movie appreciations. There's only a couple of rules here. The first one is the movie has to be at least 20 years old, and that's a rule I break occasionally. And the second rule is I have to find some interesting things to say about it. Uh, feedback's very important to the podcast, so you can offer it a couple of ways. You can offer some at feedbackpaleo at gmail.com. You can go to the Paleo Cinema Cafe on Facebook. And also, no, you can send me an owl if you went to Hogwarts. You can even support the podcast by going to patreon.com slash paleo cinema and donating as little as one dollar us per month just be aware with the podcast i may swear occasionally so you might not want to let your kids hear it if you don't want them to pick up filthy words with australian pronunciation okay so how's everybody been uh yeah we got through black friday and cyber monday and whatever the fuck tuesday was so it's not going too bad um, yeah, the festive season is approaching fast. We're not going to do too much for it. It's just going to be Sal's family and I. And by the way, as always, the Richard rule does apply to this podcast, which means we start talking about the movies at the 15-minute mark so that friend of the podcast and Patreon supporter Richard won't get upset with me next time I go to his place. So the days are getting longer here, which is kind of nice, and the weather is getting sort of warmer, but not really up to summertime yet which is a bit of a shame because I, I like the hot weather. Um, so we're kind of warm, but we're not quite at this stage yet. Yep, Henry Mancini's Lou John is my go-to music for hot weather. Um, so, yeah, they haven't been doing particularly too much at the moment. We're saving up for the Japan trip and doing all that kind of thing, which kind of curtails what we're doing. Did go to a nice Christmas party at uh, friend of the podcast, Jamie and Sarah's place, which was cool because, you know, I was catching up with a lot of people, had a good time, throwing soggy tennis balls to a dog, uh, eating lots of food. And every time we go to Jamie and Sarah's, I get to do the best fun thing at any barbecue, which is cooking the sausages. Now, the great thing about cooking the sausages at Sammy and, uh, Jamie and Sarah's place is that I get to do it without people annoying me. So I just go cook, uh, in this case, about 60 sausages, maybe more. Um, and then go back and socialise afterwards, which is kind of good. I've done my bit. I've helped out with this enormous Christmas party that my friends have held, and then I can just kind of sit back and not have to do anything else for the rest of the day because I've done my friend bit. I've 
burnt the mystery bags. Well, I haven't burnt them, but I've browned the mystery bags because I'm pretty good at this kind of thing. It's a natural genetic thing. Australian males have the ability to cook meat with great adeptness over a hot surface. Well, I don't think every Australian guy has it. There are vegetarians out there and vegans, but I'm sure that they can cook tofu with great adroitness. Uh, but yeah, I, I kind of like that. There's something primal and basic, and I think because of our Neolithic ancestors, we're kind of genetically predisposed to seeing barbecuing as a successful hunt. So, you know, we've, we've kind of shot the mammoth with our bows and arrows and thrown spears at it until it's died, and we've cut a hunk off it and we've whacked it over a fire. Now, all of that hard stuff at the front is we don't have to do anymore but we still get the same mental reward from cooking meat. Not that I'm dissing vegetarian food at all. I mean, I had um, vegan bacon uh, a while back, and it wasn't bad. It was a, like a... People said to me, well, what's it like? I actually talked about it again at the barbecue on the weekend. And they said, what's vegan bacon like? And I said, it's like a distant, fond memory of bacon. It doesn't taste quite like bacon, but it tastes enough like it to remind you of bacon. Which I suppose is the point with all these vegan things. There are those impossible burgers which are all made um, to taste like proper meat hamburgers. And vegetarians love them and they see themselves as so virtuous because they've thought of a... They've created a burger that tastes like meat. Now, the reason that they're feeling so wonderful is it tastes like meat. We're genetically wired to like meat and even vegetarians and vegans have that kind of circuit in their brain and so when they taste something that tastes like meat and through a whole bunch of wonderful kitchen chemistry actually does taste like meat they suddenly those circuits suddenly activate and they feel wonderful and they can feel virtuous as well because they haven't slaughtered an animal to do it now i'm not particularly adverse to slaughtering animals i've seen it done I've cut the head off chickens myself. It's not pleasant. Um, you have to be a fucking sadist to think that in any way the preparation of meat from pulse to plate is not a difficult thing because it very much is. Watching any mammal die is something that should feel bad and in fact does. But it's a bit like kind of working in a job that you don't like. Yes, you don't like it and yes, it's hard and yes, it's kind of arduous and sucks the soul out of you but the results are you get to then have money buy meat so in a sense killing animals for food is delayed gratification you get to do something really icky but at the end of it you know you're going to have a tomahawk ribeye on a plate by the way neither of the movies in this podcast are in any way about meat they're more about actually east of eden's more about cabbages and lettuce, sorry, lettuce, not cabbages, but lettuce, than it is about meat. I don't think you ever actually see anybody eating meat in the movie. Yeah, I mean, I'll admit there, there are lots and lots of vegan and vegetarian foods that I will eat and enjoy, uh, especially if you put hot sauce on them. I've found that any savoury food is enhanced by hot sauce. One of those mysterious ingredients that does that. It's a bit like the surprise you get the first time you have a hot chocolate with chilli in it. You think, fuck, it's got chilli in it, but they blend nicely. And hot sauce has got that wonderful skill to blend with anything savoury in a really nice way. And so we're currently going through bottles of Cholula hot sauce at an accelerated rate because I will put it on anything. If I go down to KFC, I will put it on the chicken when I get it home. 
I'll put it on a burger, I'll put it on bacon, I'll put it on anything, and hot sauce always makes it feel better. Um, I'm not too sure about salads. Maybe you could make something up and kind of do mix in some hot sauce with the mayonnaise in a salad. Uh, yeah, I can see that working. I can see it working. Let me know if there's anything you think it won't work with in a savoury thing. I don't particularly want to put hot sauce onto ice cream or anything sweet like that, but I think for um, savoury things, it might just work for reasons best known to food scientists. But it does work, and um, that's kind of cool. So I better get on and tell you the movies I've been watching now that I've drifted off into the land of meat um, before the 15-minute mark where I have to start talking about the two films um, that I have agreed to do for this podcast. Just give me a few moments while I load up my um, letterbox and get into there. There's only really a couple of things that I've watched, which is um, a little bit remiss of me. I've been watching shorter form stuff and uh, actually doing things. I've been doing some creative stuff with YouTube as usual, but uh, I did see Widows, the uh, Stephen McQueen adaptation of the Linda LaPlante um, script that was done originally as a BBC TV series, and it's good. The cast is really fine. Viola Davis, Michelle Rodriguez, Elizabeth Debicki, who's Australian, by the way, Cynthia Erivo, Colin Farrell, Dean Kaluuya, Jackie Weaver, another Australian, um, Robert Duvall and Liam Neeson. It is really, a, first off, it's a top caper film. It really works at that level of um, the widows of a deceased crime gang who decide that they want to kind of improve their lives, which have been left pretty much wrecked by the deaths of their husbands. And so they carry out the last caper that one of their husbands, a character played by Liam Neeson, who is married to the Viola Davis character, was planning. Uh, and they come up against uh, local politics in the form of an alderman for the south side of Chicago, a guy called Jack Mulligan, played by Colin Farrell. They come up against his toxic-as-fuck father, Tom Mulligan, played by Robert Duvall. And they also come up against a bunch of criminals, most notably Daniel Kaluuya's character, Jatemi Manning, who's the brother of someone, uh, a guy called Jamal, who was running against um, Mulligan in the local election, played by Brian Tyree Henry. Uh, yeah, it really works at a number of levels. It works as a crime drama. It works as a social commentary. There's a lot of things said in the movie about things like mixed marriages, about black disenfranchisement, about police corruption, about political corruption, about the roles of women in society. Um, there's a little bit of uh, kicking the fuck out of one percenters, which kind of works. And that involves a character played by Lucas Huss, who people best remember for playing the little kid in Witness with um, Harrison Ford, the Peter Weir from back in the day. He's grown up and um, his character is nuanced, but not likable at all. I actually saw this one because I'm going to be talking about it in a couple of weeks on ABC Radio, and um, it really does work for me. Um, I enjoy Widows. In fact, I added to my list of the best movies of 2018, which I'm going to be putting up on YouTube before the end of the year. The other thing I did, which was in a kind of fevered frenzy, it's movie-related, but it's not actually watching a movie. The other thing I did was I did an in-memoriam for 2018, all the movie actors and movie-related people who died in 2018, but I fucked up a couple of things. First off, I finished it before the year ended, so I've only done up until December. And also, I forgot Stan Lee, 
So I'm going to redo that one and re-up that one probably in about three weeks or so, just around the time that the reindeer shit's hitting the roof. And um, I'll, I'll do it then. So I, I fucked up that one. I kind of like the format I've put together for it, but I'm going to redo it and um, re-up it and uh, complete that one. Uh, and I'm also going to do the worst of 2018 because there were some quite high-profile movies that came out this year, which were pretty much a load of hydrogen sulfide. So I'm going to be doing that as well. I kind of worked out how I can use movie clips. As long as I keep them under three seconds and have some narration and other video or other images between them, I can kind of work on that. Um, it's a, a skill and an art uh, to kind of get that right and not make it look too obvious. And there's a lot of kind of misdirection and um, subterfuge involved in video editing, which is kind of fun. One neat trick in the video I did for Sal's um, YouTube page, which was when we went to the Anime Cafe in here in Melbourne for her birthday. And there's a really nice effect that I got, um, half by accident, half knowingly, because I panned right, I did a pan right around the cafe, which is decorated with all sorts of anime stuff from an anime called One Piece, which is I recommend. It's a lot of fun. And so I panned right around there, and I stopped, and then I panned the. I did a kind of whip pan left, and as you got past a certain point left, you got an entirely different scene than the one you'd seen as the camera was swinging right. It's a little editing trick called a whip pan, and um, you can do it really nicely and and uh, kind of slightly startle the audience with a new image. Uh, it's probably an old trick, actually. It's uh, I'm sure that people like awesome wells in the other side of the wind amongst other things have done it but it's really nice creating that stuff just kind of getting something that you haven't seen before and looking at these basically files that you have on a computer and then trying to do something interesting with them uh, it's really a lot of fun i hope everybody doesn't do it because then it'll become mainstream and and kind of mundane but I really like what I'm doing with it, and I want to get better at it. Uh, there are a few things in this life, besides podcasting, of course, and movie reviewing, that I want to get better at. But video editing and video and film and basically cinematography of the stuff that I do is something I want to get better at. So we're heading up on the 15-minute mark on this podcast, which, as we all know, according to the rigid rule, means I have to start talking about one of the two movies. And in this case, that movie is East of Eden. It's the decade's most daring novel. Such startling characters. Such untamed emotions. Now it's the frankest motion picture ever made. After stinking city hall to go there. They sneak in at night. And I walk in this front door in the daytime, see? And don't lie to me if I try to help. I love you, Aaron. He's watching us. No, he isn't. Yes, he is too. Let's move over here. Yes, life in its every emotion leaps from the pages of John Steinbeck's best of all his bestsellers. And to bring new vitality to every explosive chapter, 
to capture for you the stark realism of people who love so deeply, hate so fiercely, live so recklessly. Warner Brothers had to seek out vibrant new personalities, tap new sources of talent, create new stars. James Dean as Cal, the wildest boy you've ever met. Julie Harris as Abra, the most outspoken girl you've ever known. Joe Van Fleet as Kate, the most wicked woman you've ever seen. And all the other memorable figures who form a dramatic cavalcade that moves across California's lustiest era and her most colorful locale. How come you did it? Did what? Shot my father. Because he tried to hold me. He tried to tie me down. Nobody holds me. I'm glad I know I love you. Because now I know I wasn't... I wasn't imagining it all. I was even thinking I was bad. I love you even though I'm afraid of you. Your son, Aaron, he's everything that's good. Say hello to your mother, Aaron. Say hello to your mother! Okay, East of Eden is a 1955 American drama film directed by Elia Kazan, and it stars James Dean, Julie Harris, Raymond Massey, Burl Ives, Richard Davalos, and Joe Van Fleet in her first movie role, for which she won a Best Supporting Actress Oscar. It's based on the John Steinbeck novel from 1952, which I have read, not for a very long time, but I did read it. I went through a whole time when I went through a Steinbeck frenzy, I read um, East of Eden, I read From Mice and Men, Tortilla Flat, The Grapes of Wrath, and Travels with Charlie, which is his 1960 book. Uh, in 1960, Steinbeck brought a pickup truck and built a camper on top of it and went travelling around America with his dog Charlie. And Steinbeck kind of describes the trip as one of the great travel books that people don't know about. So if you can get a copy of Travels with Charlie, it's all good. I went through the phase because a whole bunch of the Steinbeck novels were released in pan paperback editions about 40 years ago. And I picked them all up cheaply, second-hand bookshops and places like that, and liked them. Um, his style kind of suited me and still does. I'm going to have to reread them. I've got a whole bunch of them sitting here in the man cave in the vastness of the library. And I really should kind of dip back into Steinbeck and have a bit of fun with that at some stage. But back to East of Eden. It was the only film James Dean did that was completed and released before his death. The other two, uh, which of course were Rebel Without a Cause and Giant, were released posthumously. Oddly enough, the movie only covers the last 80 pages of the novel, which is the story of the sons of Adam Trask, a farmer in the Salinas Valley in California a hundred years ago, played by Canadian actor um, Raymond Massey, who the director said only had one colour in his acting range. And so he plays a kind of stern patriarch 
the but rest of the novel is really interesting and uh, is worth checking out. It tells the story of Adam Trask's younger days, of how his family came to be in America and came to be in California. It's got some uh, really nice backstory to it. And it explains a lot of things about Adam's wife, Kate, who left him after the two sons were born and went to live in Monterey, where she became a brothel owner. The character played by Joe Van Fleet in this movie. And she's good. Uh, a lot of people have kind of criticized her role, saying it's very stagey because Elia Kazan, the director, was originally a stage director. Of course, he'd done On the Waterfront and he'd done um, Streetcar Named Desire. But he started out as a... Um, I can see it as a particularly stagey bit of acting. Uh, I think it's in tune with the other characters with whom she acts. And it, it kind of works really well from that point of view. And most of the stuff that she does is with James Dean. Now, James Dean playing Cal Trask, the wayward son. Now, I probably need to step back one step and describe this. The movie is basically, and the novel, is basically the story of Cain and Abel. Uh, there's Cal, played by James Dean, who is the bad son, in quotation marks. And his brother Aaron is the able character from the Bible, played in this case by an actor called Richard Davalos. So you've got the good son and the bad son. The good son, Aaron, is engaged to a girl called Abra, played by Julie Harris, um, who previously had a stage career as well. She's about 10 years older than the character she's playing, but puts it across quite well. Her character is um, kind of passionate and outward going and um, loving and both of the sons are in love with her. Uh, she is first is attracted to Aaron and uh, ultimately ends up engaged to him. But she's fascinated by Cal, who's intense and moody. And she says in several times during the movie that she's scared of him. But she's also fascinated by him because girls love a bad boy. Also, a lot of things written by men will tell you. Adam, for reasons that we don't understand because we haven't read the novel, is... A very stern father. He's um, not very outgoing with his feelings to his sons. He's very kind of strict and formal and stick-up-the-ass kind of guy. He's full of civic duty and progress and all of those kind of pseudo-virtues that people of business were expounding during that particular time. But his son, Cal, who is very passionate, wants his father's approval and will do anything to get it. And he finds some opportunities to try to get it as well but ultimately it doesn't happen. The story arc of the movie is about getting his father's approval for what he does, which at the time I first read the book was something with which I associated, but now I've kind of got a different viewpoint on getting the affection of distant and cold fathers. Um, I don't think you should have to. I think you should find your own path and getting parental approval of what you do and who you are is not something that I'm particularly interested in. And that brings us to the acting of James Dean in this film, which is kind of revolutionary for the time. People were talking a lot about how Brando's kind of mumble and scratch acting was a breakthrough, but James Dean's is that to the max. It is at a totally different level. His physicality as an actor, the way he kind of curls and rides and turns and... Um, uses his body as um, an instrument of his acting is something that people hadn't seen before. And I can understand why 
kind of alienated young men at the time were really into James Dean because the way his character in this movie speaks and acts and moves is an externalization of teenage angst at, you know, taken to 11. Now, whether it works really well in the format of a movie, I'm not too sure. I, I think that he, I, I preferred him much better in um, Rebel Without a Cause and in Giant. But in this first one, of course, it was his first movie. And even though he did um, have this immense talent, and there's no doubt about it, he was a talented actor, I think he hadn't honed the instrument for cinema quite to the point he had with the other two films. And so there are bits of it that seem really OTT to modern viewpoints. And yet it's kind of a revelation that a character in a movie and a main character in a movie and a protagonist in a movie, a male protagonist in this case, can be so in touch with these feelings that he will express them. And an actor so in touch with his feelings and, and so sensitive that he shows it on the screen. That's, that's something you didn't see in the 50s. The 50s were all about the pretense of being macho, um, what it was being a man usually involved your fists. And one of the things we see with Cal is, yes, he does use his fists for things, but always to a negative result. Um, punching never gets him what he wants. It's only when he listens to his best self that he prevails. Now, he does some rotten things in this film, and there's no toys about it. Cal is a shit in this movie. Uh, he does a couple of things which are of virtue, but he just doesn't... His moral compass tends to swing between 180 degrees. Sometimes it's on point, sometimes it's diametrically wrong. In modern terms, he probably had ADHD or something along those lines. You can always do a diagnosis of the character in an effort to understand the character in this film. But for me, as I said, this is kind of prototype James Dean. This is James Dean before all the bubbles have settled out of the mix. And he's kind of got his act together. If you have a look at him in, say, Giant, where he's playing Jet Rink, I think that you saw the potential that was lost there. Much, much more than you do in this film. You see a lot of it in Rubble Without a Cause, but I think Giant is the one that really kind of cemented, for me, the reputation of James Dean as an actor who died before he reached his full potential. Now, from this point on, if you hear some buzzing in the background, it's because I've got the uh, air conditioner on because I'm recording this a little bit later, and it's got very hot here. It has gone totally lujon. So to move on with East of Eden, uh, there are a couple of things about it that don't play particularly well to a modern audience, one of which is the sexual politics. And I've kind of been thinking about that. I've been thinking about the role of Kate, the one that uh, Joe, Van Fee, Joe Van Fleet plays in the movie, and about her being a sex worker and becoming a very successful businesswoman through knowing, understanding, and catering to the needs of men. There's gambling, there's food there, there's alcohol, and there is sex. 
Both Steinbeck's text and the movie treats her quite badly. Uh, she was a beautiful woman in her youth, but as she's in middle age in the part of the book that was made into the movie, and remember it was only the last 80 pages of the book that became the movie of East Eden, She's got arthritis in her hands. She's uh, probably alcoholic. She drinks a lot. Maybe she drinks for the pain. Who knows? And uh, she's not in a good place for herself, even though she's quite successful. And that's almost kind of a biblical punishment. It's perceived as a biblical punishment. Now, the parallels between Genesis and, and this book and movie are pretty explicit. There's Adam and there's Kate, who are Adam and Eve. There's Cain and Abel, who are Aaron and Cal. So you've got those kind of dynamics playing in the narrative. The problem I've got with that is, first off, looking at it from a modern viewpoint, Kate didn't want to be in the marriage. Yes, she shot her husband in the shoulder before she left, which is probably not the best way to get anyone's sympathy. But she's decided to live life on her own terms, start a business, and be successful in that business. In uh, If it wasn't for the fact that it was sex work, which I know a lot of cultures still have a bit of a thing about, here in Australia it's been decriminalised and it's less of an issue for us than it is for, say, a lot of people in North America and a few other places. So looking at it from through my eyes... Um, it's a perfectly legitimate thing that she went into that kind of work. But the text and the movie treat that as a horribly sinful and nasty thing because the book was written in 1951-1952 and the movie was made in 1955, so it's a very much a different culture. So I look kinder on Kate than I probably did when I read the book and then when I first saw the movie. I think my viewpoints on um, certain things have changed in that time, and that's kind of cool that they do because you come at the movie from a fresh angle when you watch it again after a number of years. And that's not a bad thing at all. Uh, the other cool thing about this movie, you know, while I'm on the subject of Kate and her brothel, uh, Kate has a girl working there who's kind of attracted to Cal when he turns up and tries to see Kate and get her to recognise that he is her son. And that's a girl called Anne, who kind of does the general clean up around the place and she's played by an actor called Lois Smith Lois Smith's still acting to this very day in fact she played um, the grandmother in Lady Bird the uh, 2018 movie I saw earlier this year with Saoirse Rowan Ronan in it uh, so it's kind of cool that you got that continuity there and the other cool thing and the voice of this character is dubbed because um, apparently the actor had a thick New York accent, which wasn't really appropriate for the character. The bouncer in Kate's Brothel is played by Timothy Carey, um, a character actor you've seen in any number of things, and uh, his own wonderfully weird and totally fucked up movie, The World's Worst Sinner, which you really should see, and I really should do for a paleo cinema at some stage in the future. Um, he's in there. Uh, he was also in the Monkeys movie, Head, oddly enough so it's kind of cool seeing those people uh character actors in this one too you got burl ives playing the sheriff albert decker who unfortunately had a quite a, a nasty death playing um will hamilton a businessman who goes into business with cal to grow beans and uh let me see who else was it? there was one other i wanted to mention lonnie chapman playing an automobile mechanic. Uh, Lottie Chapman had a long career in film and television as well, so it's kind of nice seeing familiar faces in the movie. Now, does it work for me as a movie? It kind of does. I mean, I like the narrative tension of it. I like Steinbeck, even when I disagree with what he's saying. 
and revisiting this one again after a number of years was a cool thing. Uh, the lovely thing about it too was it cost me $6 to buy the uh, DVD of the movie. It was in the old movies part of JB Hi-Fi, which is the go-to place around Australia to get. And I think I bought it on 20% off as well, so that was kind of cool. I really appreciated um, that. Actually, I got the second movie for this podcast, No Love for Johnny, quite cheaply too. It was in a three-pack of P- uh, Peter Finch movies that I picked up on eBay for about 8 bucks. so... Lovely thing about Paleo Cinema movies, you can pick them up very cheaply if you just hunt around a little bit. Of course, there are always free ways of getting them, and I'm not going to judge anybody who does that. But for me, it was um, a nice buy, and revisiting the film was worthwhile. I'm going to have to watch Giant now, because I recently watched Rebel Without a Cause and did it on the podcast. I've now seen East of Eden as well, so I've really got to kind of revisit Giant, which I haven't seen for a number of years. And then I could put James Dean away for a while. So that's about it for uh, East of Eden. By the way, it's stinking hot here. It's like 8 o'clock at night. And it's still over 100 degrees in old school. So it's about 37, 38 degrees out here at the moment. So if my lips sound parched, it's because they are. Now I'm going to take a break, have a drink, play the trailer for No Love for Johnny, and then talk talk to you about this quite interesting smaller budget and smaller in fame british political movie return of the conqueror not a rose petal on the floor just a sardine in the cupboard i've run out of rose petals and forgot to order any more alice any messages phone or anything i'm from downing street yes no what do you expect prime minister's chosen all the right-wing ministers he could well all the names are not out yet there may be something Something small. I've told you. Told you again, you should take a stand against them. You could be leading the left now if you hadn't lick-spittled around, hoping for a job. I'm not a lick-spittle. I'm what you'd call a fascist hyena. I can't stop now, Johnny, but I want to talk to you sometime. No, real words. We've been using sign language for as long as I can remember. Words don't mean much to you anymore, do they? I live by them. Well, truth doesn't, then. I shan't disturb you coming in. I'm sure you won't. That was English politician Johnny Byrne, played by Peter Finch, with his wife Alice, played by Rosalie Crutchley, in the 1961 British drama No Love for Johnny, directed by Ralph Thomas. It was based on a 1959 novel by a real politician in the UK, a guy called Wilfred Feinberg, who had been in the Labour government. He was kind of conservative Labour. And um, unfortunately, Feinberg died not long afterwards. He was in a car accident. So he'd written a couple of novels, but uh, he died in 1958. So the novel, which wasn't his first novel, was published posthumously. Um, it's slightly different from the movie, of course. There's always a little bit of um, cutting and pasting and, and modifying that goes on with these things, of course. But I'd seen the movie a lot of years ago, and I kind of liked it. Uh, I've got a personal fondness for Peter Finch, which has to do with family history. I'll tell you the family history. I think I've mentioned it before on a podcast, but it was years ago, so forgive me if I repeat myself. Um, during World War II, my grandfather, who was in his 40s at the time, was in the Catering Corps in the Army, and he went to the Middle East. He um, went to New Guinea as well, and in New Guinea, he palled up with Peter Finch, uh, who was also um, in the Army at the time, and one of the things my grandfather told me and I'd had no reason to disbelieve him, is that he and Finchie used to steal rations off American convoy trucks 
because they had better rations than the Australian soldiers did. So they'd grab crates of rations off the trucks. One of them had engaged the driver in conversation, probably Peter Finch, while my grandfather stole shit out of the back. Um, nobody ever found out about it, oddly enough. But I know my grandfather was a crafty bastard during the war because in the 70s, when I was quite young, I found the dice that he used during World War II. We were kind of clearing out some stuff with him. And he had a pair of uh, green Bakelite dice, so kind of translucent green Bakelite dice. And so my brother and I started rolling him against the wall. And because they were made of Bakelite and they were then at least 40 years old, um, they shattered. And we found out that certain uh, dots on the dice had weights under them. So my grandfather had gone through the entirety of World War II with loaded dice, and nobody ever figured it out. I mean, even at that stage, I knew how you figure out loaded dice. You drop the dice into a glass of water, and if the same numbers keep coming up, they're loaded. But apparently, during the war, nobody knew about that, and so my grandfather got away with uh, extra rations of pretty much everything, apart from the ones that he and Peter Finch stole off the back of trucks. The family connection was always um, a, a strong thing. Uh, Peter Finch was Australian. He was an immigrant from England. He went back there, of course, and became very famous when he did Network and uh, won himself a posthumous Oscar. But he was um, a, he moved born in England, moved to Australia, grew up in Australia, and he started his career here before going overseas, of course, as any Australian who wanted to be famous in the 1940s did. But he still counts as an Australian. He was the first acting Oscar winner in Australia. We'd previously had Oscar winners. We had people like Damien Parra, who'd won a documentary Oscar in the 1940s for a documentary he did in New Guinea during the war called uh, Kokoda Frontline, which he too won posthumously. We seem to have a slight history of men winning Oscars in Australia posthumously. Uh, Damien Parra and Peter Finch both so there you go I'm linking things together madly here Peter Finch was in New Guinea with my grandfather he won an Oscar posthumously Damien Parra was in New Guinea filming stuff and he won an Oscar posthumously everything is tied together so anyway back to No Love for Johnny so Johnny Burns a, a Yorkshire politician who's lost his um, Yorkshire accent and he's burnt out he's cynical he's burnt out he has just won with an increased majority in a federal election and he's waiting around to see whether he gets a position in government. Uh, he doesn't look, doesn't look like he's going to get one. Um, he's not particularly well-liked among some of his colleagues, which we find out. And it goes for a few days of his life. Um, he's, he's a bit bitter about not receiving an invitation to join the government. His wife leaves him. Um, Alice leaves him. And he's kind of adrift. He kind of drifts into a conspiracy of MPs on the far left who are conspiring against the centrist government. He's kind of drifting towards a relationship with a woman upstairs, Mary, played by Billy Whitelaw, which doesn't quite gel. It doesn't quite get together. They, it's one of those things where, you know, the timing's not right for one or other of them, and when something's going on, the other one's available that kind of uh, of an issue. Meanwhile, the new government is heading towards a crisis in the Middle East, which parallels the Suez Crisis in 1956. And this left-wing conspiracy group of MPs, amongst whom are some really interesting character actors, 
We've got Mervyn Johns in there, uh, Glynis Johns' father, and a very fine character actor in his own right, who was in uh, Dead of Night. And also, drumroll, Donald Pleasance, who's kind of the um, the grey eminence of that particular conspiracy group. And he, when Johnny doesn't particularly lean his way and doesn't follow through on some things that he's asked to do, uh, starts talking to local Labor branches in his uh, Johnny's electorate and causes him no end of trouble in that. Uh, meanwhile, almost by accident, Johnny meets a very much younger woman. He's in about 42. She's 20. A person called Pauline, played by uh, Mary Peach. And he starts a liaison with her. And it's painful. It really is painful. He starts referencing things that happened during the war when they're out on walks along um, the Battersea Embankment. And she says, no, I don't remember that. I was only a child at the time. And those kinds of things. Uh, He's um, passionate about her. He's kind of desperate and lonely. He's, He's very lonely. One of the things this movie does very, very well is talk about the loneliness of being a parliamentarian. Now, there's some parallels to some very recent stuff here in Australia. One of our Labor politicians, Anthony Albanese, who's left-wing Labor, has uh, given a speech only days ago talking about how lonely it is in Parliament and how isolated not only from the public a lot of parliamentarians are here in Australia, but also from their colleagues because they're all in their own little bubbles in their offices. They've got toilets, they've got kitchens they only see each other at certain times they've got the tv on abc news and sky news all the time they only see their colleagues at at certain times of day when they're in parliament or when there's a meeting or something like that and what albanese has said is that um, it leads to isolation and loneliness and people drifting in their views away from the views of the public because they're living in this hermetically sealed bubble where they're either talking to lobbyists or they're talking to some colleagues or they're talking to journalists and they never actually talk outside a certain bubble. Um, and it kind of reminded me of uh, Albanese's speech when I was re-watching this movie. By the way, the entire movie is on YouTube in a quite a good copy. So if you want to watch no love for johnny it's available there and you can kind of stream it yourself at no cost i actually paid out for it but i didn't know the streaming one was there. i really should check youtube first i can probably save myself some drinking money and by drinking money i mean the money that i spend with morris when uh, morris from love that album podcast and i get together in melbourne cbd and neck down an espresso or a um, cappuccino or a cup of tea uh, sitting in quite grand circumstances in the outside the old GPO building and kind of catch up, which we did a couple of days ago. And shout out to Morris too. So I'm really going to have to check YouTube first with classic films and just see whether they're... So listen, let's... So, you know, basically Johnny is heading towards a catastrophe on a number of approaches. He's having an affair with a much younger woman while he's still technically married. He's involved in this um, conspiracy, which it is hinted does have its origins um, offshore let's say in a maybe the direction of Vladimir Putin's country and so he's kind of on the edge of a precipice there he we see him wandering around London he goes into a strip club and watches the strip tea show and then leaves he 
um, visits a prostitute but doesn't go through with it and pays her. So you you can kind of see that this guy is kind of adrift in his life. He doesn't have any solid beliefs politically. He um, has kind of got cynical and jaded about that as well. So he's morally and um, philosophically and personally adrift. And that's kind of an interesting thing for a movie of this era to portray. Now, one of the things that's been said about this film is it was um, distributed by Rank, and Rank was a very conservative organisation at the time. And they believed that Rank let the movie out and, and had it produced because it made the Labour Party in Britain look bad. Now, I don't particularly see it that way. I see it in a kind of broader context than that. I think this movie's about a man who forgets the reasons why he's living the life he's living. And he's basically having a midlife crisis. And we all know about those. Once you get a, a certain number of birthdays, it happens. Um, the movie does portray that very well. And Finch, as always, is superb. And I've never seen him in a bad movie. Even in pieces of shit like Lost Horizon, Finch always kind of paid off as an actor. It was nice to see him get the Academy Award, even though it was a little late for him. I think that he was an actor who was really fine. He played Oscar Wilde in The Trials of Oscar Wilde brilliantly. He was in, you know, he was doing edgy stuff as well in the um, 70s. He, he's just one of those actors that I've got a lot of admiration for, apart from, as I said, the personal family thing there. Uh, there's some good supporting characters in this one as well. Billy Whitelaw is very good as Mary, the woman with whom he almost has an affair. Mary pitches Pauline, his lover, who he pursues when she kind of decides to break things off. He goes to excruciatingly embarrassing lengths to try to win her back before he kind of comes to terms with the fact that they've broken up. And as a man who has been broken up with in the past... That cut a little close to the bone for me. The way it's portrayed in the movie reminded me of a few things in my own life that I maybe I wouldn't rather forget, but that I'd rather sit in the background and kind of inform my life and behaviour now. But I don't really want to be reminded of particularly much. Uh, we've got a few other people to turn up in there. Vanilla Fielding, who died this year, and people remember her as the vamp in Carry On Screaming. She plays a socialite with whom Johnny goes to a party and meets Pauline at. And she goes around and she decides she wants to kiss every man in the room, which is, you know, is something I've, I've seen. I've actually said it done once by a woman. Um, and uh, the other thing that's interesting about that scene is, in a small role as an extra, we get a very early Oliver Reed who passes Vanilla Fielding quite um, ardently, let's say, in this movie. And you go, shit, that's Oliver Reed. Yes, indeed it is. It's Oliver Reed in there. And um, he's only in there for that one scene. And that's kind of uh, cool. Uh, the film was filmed in Cinemascope but in black and white, as indeed were a lot of English films at the time. And it, some of it was filmed around uh, the Houses of Parliament in England. The interiors, of course, were done on um, sound stages. But having the location shooting around uh, the British Houses of Parliament kind of gives it a, a lived-in feel. We get a couple of other people turning up there. Uh, Dennis Price, playing a photographer for whom Pauline works, uh, is really good in this one. I, I like 
his character a lot. He's clearly a gay photographer. He's not a, a gentleman who prefers women. But true to a lot of portrayal of gay people at the time, he's very much a sympathetic character, not only sympathetic to Pauline, but sympathetic when Johnny comes around to ask whether he's seen her. He really is um, quite a lived-in character. And for such a small role, Dennis Price does a superb job of giving him a feeling of, of being a real person, which I really liked in this one. Um, we've got, uh, let's see who else is there. Just trying to Stanley Holloway turns up as one of the politicians who's an ally and friend of Johnny's and who gives him some good advice. And uh, Stanley Holloway, we know, played um, Eliza Doolittle's father in My Fair Lady a couple of years later and was well known for many, many years as an English actor and comedian and singer. Yeah, he turns up, and in his character, again, uh, there's, there's some really fine acting in this, not in roles that kind of draw attention to themselves, but they really do feel lived in, in a way that um, British actors seem to have done it around this time, when they were all kind of really good at going, okay, well, I've got you know five scenes here. I'm going to really you know play my A game in them, and add to the ensemble. Uh, it's kind of a stagey approach, but all of these actors really do give the feeling that the, the characters they're playing are real. And, of course, that's something you want in a political drama as well. You want the characters to feel real. You want to kind of invest in them emotionally. And even though Johnny is by no means a reputable character, he's an understandable character. We understand that he's he's got cynical doing what he does he's representing people who are you know, and we see some of his constituents and they're unsophisticated and uneducated and they're kind of for johnny all the things he ran away from when he left the north he got rid of his accent he ran away even though he needs them of course to vote for him he ran away from that kind of unsophisticated and uneducated worldview which is something I sympathise with. I mean, one of the reasons I left where I grew up was that I wanted to go to a place where people knew more things. Um, I didn't get an opportunity to go to university or anything like that, but I was going away from the kind of culture in which I grew up. And so I kind of sympathised with the character to that extent, even though, unlike myself, Johnny needed those people in the movie to vote for him and so he uh, in returning to them and he has to do it a couple of times as the plot unfolds he really does uh, kind of get drawn back to a place he doesn't want to be and representing people he doesn't want to represent now, Betty Box who was the producer of the movie said that um, I'll, I'll give you the quote that I've got here in Wikipedia she, says, she was very surprised Rank let me do the film because they were very politically conservative as an organisation Perhaps they liked the Peter Finch character being so corrupt because, after all, he was left-wing. I must say I liked it very much. I enjoyed making it very much. I loved working with Peter Finch. He was drunk some of the time but and not always very easy, but I was just very fond of him. Ralph and I both knew how to work with him, Ralph Thomas being the director. And the results paid off because... Um, Finch won two awards for the performers, one a BAFTA British um, Film Award and the Silver Bear for Best Actor at the 11th Berlin International Film Festival. So it definitely got critical acclaim. 
though it wasn't particularly financially successful, uh, people weren't looking to watch see political movies. But I think of its time, it was one of the good, solid political movies that the British film industry gave us at the time. I liked it. I liked the complexity of the characters. I liked the moral questions being asked of Johnny. I liked the fact that the relationship with the much younger woman doesn't play out as a cliché. There are so many movies of 1961 and, and times around then when that age difference isn't underlined and uh, people go, oh, geez, isn't that guy lucky to have such a young woman? In this movie, it doesn't play with that kind of Hollywood or even um, English cliché of the age difference between uh, a man and the woman in the, the character he's having an affair with. Uh, American films still, to a great extent, do that. But in this case, it's actually used to intensify the drama, and I really like that. And that's, of course, from the no- original novel by um, Wilfred Feinberg as well. But, yeah, this one, this is a grown-up film, and it's a film that is kind of prescient in some ways because one of the things that came up a year or two after this film was released was the Profumo scandal in the government where um, government ministers were having affairs with much younger women and of course there was the um, politics of giving information to foreign powers and all that kind of shit blew up in the face of um, Amer- of English politics I was going to say American but it's not, it's English politics so there are a lot of things there that um, kind of foreshadowed real life events not too long afterwards there are a couple of scenes that um Finch has with the Prime Minister, played by Geoffrey Keane, a character actor who went on to do a a number of things in in the future, including being in James Bond films. And um, there are a couple of scenes that really played out nicely. The Prime Minister is quite conservative. He's he's embarrassed to talk about Johnny's marriage breakup and finds it a very embarrassing thing to talk about. And he also, at the same time, has a chat with Johnny about the person who's just left his office who is a politician who's dying of cancer and um, has to drop out of the position he was given in the cabinet, which leaves an opportunity for Johnny to come in. So there's some nice little bits of, of business there. Probably They probably could only have come from somebody who'd actually lived a life, as the, Wilfred Feinberg, the author of the novel, had. And again, it's just those little touches, those little bits of business, which aren't essential to the plot, but fill in the cracks and and kind of make the mise-en-scene feel very much lived in. And again, it's one of those things I notice in movies these days. I notice little acting quirks. I notice people who are really playing their A game when they have really no need to and who do a thoroughly professional job and surprising at times. There are little moments of this film with some people's acting where they pull something out of their box of tricks and it's perfect for what's required for the role. Uh, More and more as I look at films, just those little moments of of incredibly fine acting that surprise me. Um, There's a couple of moments with Liam Neeson in uh, The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, for instance, and with Viola Davis in Widows, where um, the text on the page is just exploded into life by the skills of the actors. And more and more, I love that stuff. I love good acting 
um, maybe even more than I like good screenwriting these days. But really fine acting is a joy to watch, and there are moments when you see it, and it leaves you breathless. And there are a couple of moments in this movie, even though Finch was drunk, of course, where his character does go to some very vulnerable places, and Finch plays them really well. He wasn't... He was, I'm looking at over his career. He was not an actor who was scared of playing vulnerable. He'd started out on the stage. He started out on radio as well. He had an affair with um, Vivian Lee when Vivian Lee and Laurence Olivier were touring Australia and then went back to England with them, um, playing Shakespearean roles. So he had a background on the stage. And he knew that um, he wanted to get under the skin of certain characters. If you look at the work he did in movies like Sunday Bloody Sunday, for instance, um, and playing Howard Beale in Network, there's a shattered quality to the characters he plays in those movies, which really does um, give us something quite marvellous. And he's one of those actors that people don't talk about these days. They don't talk about him very much. But the quality of what he did is incredibly high, and it was for a number of years. And it's an odd odd thing. I'm trying to think. There are actors who do have alcohol problems uh, in the history of cinema and yet perform at an incredibly high level and give us full value. And I don't think that it's because they're alcoholic at all, but would they have been better were they not alcoholic? I don't know. Uh, It's just one of those things where... I don't like the fact that people had that horrible disease and still worked and still gave us wonderful stuff. I mean, I think that that's an incredibly admirable thing to fight through that stuff to the extent that a lot of actors did and unfortunately still do. But I really do have a great fondness for Peter Finch. Uh, And playing Johnny Byrne in No Love for Johnny... It's probably one of my five favourite Peter Finch roles. I really like what he does with it, and I like the way he plays it. And I like the fact that he's good at being vulnerable and wrong sometimes. I mean, protagonists in movies, you can get movie stars that don't want to play somebody that's wrong. But Finch was always very good at showing somebody that was self-sabotaging. And in No Love for Johnny, he definitely plays that sort of character. So anyway, that's about it this time around. It's time to knock, knock, knock that naughty clock that says it's time to go. And uh, so thank you for listening. Uh, Definitely check out No Love for Johnny if you're interested in that kind of film. It's good value. And uh, and there's an innate drama and questions raised by political films that are always kind of interesting for me. So again, thank you for listening. Thank you to the Patreon supporters, of course. And I'm sorry this one's a couple of days late. Some things interrupted. But um, I'm glad I I was able to bring these two movies to you. So, again, you can um, follow us on the Paleo Cinema Cafe on Facebook. You can donate via the Patreon page at patreon.com slash paleocinema. And I will be back soon with another Martian Driving podcast and not quite as soon with another Paleo Cinema podcast. In the meantime, look after yourselves. Take care. It can be a rough time of year for people sometimes. So just kind of, if you need to talk to me on Facebook, if you're a friend of mine, definitely do so. But definitely reach out to other people if you do need to. As I said, it can be a rough time of year for some people. But if it's not, have a great time. Even if it is, have a great time anyway. I really hope that everybody gets everything they need at this time of year and half of the things they want. So again, here are the credits. 
in the style of movie credits to honor the Patreon supporters of this podcast. I'll check you guys later. Here are the credits for Paleo Cinema Podcast and Martian Drive-In Podcast, done in the style of movie credits to honor the people who support this podcast. Thank you to Tom, the focus puller, Sarah, the special effects technician, Ian, the caterer, Grant, the technicolor consultant, Claire, the script doctor, Gary, the prop master, Morris, the musical director, Jan, the dialect coach, Arm and our key grip, Matt, the rattlesnake wrangler, Elaine, our scientific advisor, Julia, our casting director, Chris, our camera operator, Christopher, our gaffer, Miss Jane, our wardrobe mistress, Tansy, our foley artist, Alyssa, our location scout, Mark, our second unit director, Paul, our special makeup effects director, Tammy, the donut wrangler, Tim, our New York unit director, Rabbi Steve, our spiritual advisor, uh, Steve Sullivan, our director of monster effects, Dylan, our goat wrangler, Eric, our set security lead, Richard H, our set photographer, Mark D, our extra, and David L, our extra, Kerry H, who is the accountant, and our newest supporter, Gary J, who is a CG effects technician. So thank you very much to all of the supporters of the podcast. I really appreciate you dipping into your purses and helping out with the podcast.